Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Before we get going today, I have a very big announcement. After a ton of requests for a place for expat and expat hopefuls to network and get to know each other, I decided to start a new Facebook group. It's called the Expat Money Forum, and it's 100% free to join. We literally just started the group, so you can really network and get to know the individuals there. We will be keeping a very close eye on this group, and I already have three awesome moderators volunteer to help me out. So to make it easy on you, I set up a really simple redirect link. All you have to do to join this group right now is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum. We already have a bunch of previous guests from my show in the group, so you can ask your questions directly to the professionals, or get help from the people who are on the ground in the country you are interested in being an expat in. So I hope that you will join us in our new Facebook group by going to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum, and I will see you there. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show. And today's guest is the chief financial educator and co-founder of The Money Advantage. She is known for making money simple, fun, and doable. She is the co-host of The Money Advantage podcast, the popular business and personal finance show. She teaches you how to keep more of your money you make, protect it, and turn it into cash-flowing assets. Please welcome to the show, Rachel Marshall. Rachel, how are you doing? Awesome, Mikkel. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. It's really a pleasure. My pleasure. Well, you know, I was a guest on your show and I just love the work that you do. And that was such a fun conversation. I thought, okay, we got to get you now over on my show. I want to, I want my listeners to hear what you guys do, to learn from you. And yeah, just really want to explore this. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited. And it was a great conversation having you on our show as well. So very reciprocated. Rachel, flattery will get you everywhere. I love it. <laughs> Why don't you take a minute and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you get working in this industry? How did you get into privatized banking and all the, the fun things that we're going to be talking about today? Absolutely. Well, I think it's a really interesting journey. Your listeners may be familiar with Robert Kiyosaki and the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book. I think that really was catalytic for me in coming into this industry from 
all the way back from eighth grade. So started reading the book. I was homeschooled. My parents said, hey, why don't you read this book? And it was more so just something that planted a seed in the back of my mind. Fast forward several years, my husband and I are dating. We're thinking, what is life going to look like for us once we're married? And we said, well, you know, let's start a business. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Maybe a computer services company and I'll be the administrative assistant, the secretary, who knows? And so we were really just kind of looking at ideas of how could we start a business because we knew that businesses and real estate specifically were the best ways to really get your money working for you, not just working for income. So what we got into is we decided, why don't we start a health insurance agency? Now, this was an idea that was kind of pitched to us. We thought as long as we can figure out how to work in the industry, we didn't need a lot of overhead capital. And all we needed to do is get some training, get some licensure, and then figure out the industry, which is no small feat, and we'd be off and running. So in the life insurance and health insurance licensing exam, there's this little phrase about whole life insurance that kind of piqued our interest and made us be a little curious. And as we started serving clients with health insurance, we realized most of our clients were business owners who had much bigger needs than just the health insurance itself. And meanwhile, we were coming into the industry right about the ACA timeline, which if you are familiar with the U.S. at all, this was a humongous upheaval in um, the change of health care or health insurance industry. So we realized that there was a much greater need and really that surrounded the idea of having more solid guarantees in your financial life, having a cash flow system that really worked, keeping as much of your money as possible and really being in a position of financial stability and certainty. And as we started pursuing whole life insurance for ourselves personally, we said, oh my goodness, this can be a tremendous asset and tremendously valuable to our audience and our clients. And how can we help them be in this position of having cash that they can use in other investing opportunities. And that's really where things started to take off from there. And so that's our introduction into the industry. I mean, this kind of started with just a passion personally to figure out how do we make money and how do we make it work for us and how do we become financially free? And then from there, it turned into saying, how do we not just figure this out for ourselves, but really help other people along on this journey? It's super interesting, but let's take one step back. So, okay, for because you used a lot of maybe what I might call like buzzwords and people that maybe who are not in the industry maybe might not know. So let's talk about some of the differences between the types of insurance and the things that you decided to specialize in maybe how they work. Oh, that's a fabulous question. So when we really started looking more deeply at what we could do with our finances? How could we start a business? How could we not just get income coming in each month? Because as any business owner may know, that's not something that you can necessarily count on. That's having income is not the same thing as having wealth, having assets that are producing income and knowing that your future is in a position of certainty where you really have this confidence that you know the income is gonna come in tomorrow and the day after and the day after and, and 40 years from now. And so we really were starting to look at what allows us to do this best. And we came across this idea of privatized banking, which is also called the infinite banking concept. And it is usually using whole life insurance. Now I'm going to rewind because you said, again, that's kind of a buzzword. And what's really interesting is I think a lot of people, when they hear insurance, of course, we think life insurance means I get a death benefit. If I die, that's the end of the story. 
do I want that death benefit? Do I not want that death benefit? And that's kind of the end of the conversation. And to be honest, when we came into that position, my husband had a policy on himself. It was a term life insurance policy of $50,000, which would have meant if I think it was like a 10 year policy or something. So within that 10 year span of time, if he passed away, there would be enough money for me to bury him basically. And that was how we saw life insurance at the time. And so as we started exploring more, we realized there was a way to not only think about life insurance as life insurance, but really to step back from the whole life insurance idea at all and just really say, how can we store money in a place that's maybe safer than the banking system? Maybe it's better than just getting gold and silver and stashing that away under the mattress. It's better than putting dollars in the coffee can in the backyard and hoping that inflation doesn't completely erode that. It's better than throwing money in the stock market and hoping things work out because I wasn't sure if I should have invested in that stock or not and I couldn't foresee and predict the future and much less predict something like 2020 and all the craziness that's happened this year. And so we wanted personally, a lot of guarantees and certainty. We wanted a tremendous amount of confidence. And so we were looking for how can we be in a position where we're not only saving money, but we're making sure that that money is not going to lose value. It's not going to drop in value. It's not going to go from $10,000 today to $1,000 tomorrow because it evaporated in thin air. And we wanted something that was accessible where we could get to that money and that gave us something back in return. It was safe, it was liquid, and it was growing. It was doing something more than just sitting there or losing value with inflation. And so really that was what brought us to this idea of figuring out what is the best way to do that. And we came across this idea of the infinite banking concept. And we said, you know what, there's something really valuable about building cash value. And that cash value just so happens to be inside a life insurance policy. And we said, oh, this is really cool. So is this a concept that you created? Has this been around for a long time? Who, where does this come from? I want to know a little bit of the history of this. Great question. Now, your audience, I'm going to um, step to the side just a little bit because I know your audience is an expat audience. You have people all across the world. Maybe they're in the U.S. Maybe they're in Sweden. Maybe they're in Switzerland. Maybe they're in Japan. We, you're probably coming from all over the place. And so this particular concept of being able to use a whole life insurance product, which is actually a specially designed whole life insurance product for maximum early cash value. What that means is you're getting as much of the saving component inside of it as possible. This is not available all across the world. So this is something that is available uniquely in the US and Canada. Now, we've had a lot of people who reach out to our company, The Money Advantage, and they'll say, can you help me? Is this available in Europe, in Brazil, in Argentina? And a lot of times the answer is no. And unfortunately, that can be a closed door for some people, but it's not the end all be all. So this idea that is available in the US and Canada is not something that is brand new. I think this is the thing that a lot of people will say, well, I'm hearing this new thing. It must be something newfangled. Yeah. It's not. New technology. Yes. Cool, yeah. <laughs> yes. Or maybe it's related to Bitcoin somehow, or it's something that's new breaking. The funny thing is it's actually much older. It's traditional. It's back to the way that people used to do things back a hundred years ago, where they put their money into whole life insurance 
and real estate. And again, I'm talking in the US in the space, but there was a guy named Nelson Nash that formulated the Nelson Nash Institute. And he created something called IBC, the infinite banking concept. And he was a guy, he actually passed away about a year ago now. And he created this idea by looking at what he had available inside his whole life insurance policy when he was in complete financial bind, but realized I have this cash that I can use inside my life insurance policy. And he was able to use that money to really just be able to make a huge difference in his life. I think he overcame something with a child that was ill at the time. And he was in a position where he said, I have this resource that I didn't even it didn't even register. It wasn't even on my radar that I had this money that I could use and tap into. How much, how many other people are in a similar position where they have money or they have a place that they could access cash that they're not aware of? And so he started helping people to understand the value of using whole life insurance in this way. And so that's when the, the terminology of privatized banking and the infinite banking concept really came onto the scene. You hear people say, cash flow banking as well, or high cash value, whole life insurance. And that's really a lot of similar terms for the same thing. But that goes way, way back to as, as far back as 120 years, back before the Civil War, back before the Great Depression. And so it's really something that has been in operation for the ultra wealthy that they've been using for a very long time. Well, it's almost like it's... Um a really well-kept secret because I swear I wasn't hearing about this a few years ago and now it's starting to come across my radar more and more and more. And I, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm searching it or Google algorithms or I don't know, but I, I, I keep hearing these phrases and these, these words coming up over and over again. So I think that's one of the reasons that I'm super excited to learn from you today. So you did mention, and, and we talked about this kind of off, off camera a little bit, and it was kind of one of the qualifiers. Um, you mentioned that there are ways, though, for non-Americans or people who are living overseas to get involved in this. It's, it, it is not a closed door. So let's explore that a little bit. Absolutely. And this is a question that we didn't know the answer to and we had to find out. And so this mm. is something that I'm really excited to be able to share with you because we found the answer. So there are many countries that have the ability to use an American United States-based whole life insurance policy, but there's also states or um, countries, I'm sorry, that are not. So there is a, a list of countries that this is available in, in terms of reciprocity. Now, however, say you're living in Brazil and maybe you have a dual citizenship, you're US citizen, I don't even know which countries, you have the ability to have dual citizenship, but let's just say it's a country that you can have dual citizenship. If you're a US citizen, you are able to get life insurance in the United States. Now, the interesting part about this is that you need to be in the United States at the time of application and during the underwriting process, which is a medical process to figure out how healthy you are and how likely the insurance company would have to pay out the death benefit. So they're going to figure out the amount they're going to charge you for the amount of insurance with underwriting. Now, if you are not a U.S. citizen, though, so say you live in Brazil and you are a citizen of the country of Brazil and you'd still like to have life insurance in the U.S. and use this whole life insurance privatized banking concept. You can still apply for life insurance if you fall into this qualification, if you have hard assets inside the U.S. So that would be if you have real estate or you have a U.S.-based business, 
So you have assets in the US, and then again, you're willing to travel to the country. So if you're fluid in terms of maybe you're an expat, but you're able to travel or and, and you have citizenship in the US or you have hard assets, business or real estate in the US and you're willing to travel. So it's one or the other then? Yes. So even if you're an American citizen, but you don't hold assets in the United States anymore, but you do travel back to the US on occasion and you were there for the underwriting period, you could qualify. Do I have that correct? Yes. Okay. So you're an American citizen and you're willing to travel. Yes, that works. Or you're not an American citizen, but you have hard assets in the US and you're willing to travel. Then yes. Okay. And so, and then give me an example of what would be a hard asset of, so literally only physical things or would a stock portfolio or bonds or things like this, would they be applicable? That is a great question. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure the answer on that. I know that you need to have real Today estate. Today we throw right, Rachel businesses. under the bus and <laughs> try to- Not completely under the bus. That's something that I would need to explore a little further if you had dollar denominated assets that were inside of the US. But for the sake of this discussion, what I know for sure that I can say with 100% certainty is that if you have real estate or you have a US-based business where that's a physical hard asset that's not a paper asset, but it is something that's tangible and real in the US, then that would allow you to pursue that uh, product. Now, I do want to give a caveat. Let's just say, for instance, you are living in Iraq or Iran or a country that might be a lot more conflict-ridden or maybe doesn't have a good relationship with the US, there's a possibility that you may not be on the list of countries that would have the ability to get that insurance in the US. So again, there's some qualifiers and some caveats on this. But what I love to be able to make someone aware of is that just because you're not in the US or a US citizen does not mean you're disqualified. Okay, that's amazing. So, and I guess this is an opportune time to mention, once again, we are not giving individual tax advice. We are not giving individual financial advice. We are talking in general terms here, and this is for educational purposes. And um, I think that uh, we might as well plug halfway through the episode, partway through the episode. If people are already curious about this, should they be checking out the podcast? Should they be going to your website? Where should, be people, where should people be learning more about these things? That's a great question. And I really appreciate you asking that even early and upfront. We are available at themoneyadvantage.com. That's T-H-E, moneyadvantage.com. Um, there's three key resources. One, we have a free podcast with as many episodes, I think we're up to about 150 now, Beautiful. that talk about the infinite banking concept, that talk about how to use it with life insurance, that dig deep into questions that people might have about the safety of life insurance or what kind of life insurance you can use or how do you have a good life insurance company. So we've just really been able to provide a wealth of resources and knowledge through the podcast. And that's the Money Advantage podcast if you're just searching directly on Apple Podcast or um, Spotify or something like that. And if you're gonna check it out, Go look up my episode where I absolutely rant about many, many things. Yes. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> it was a very good rant. It was. And you talked a lot about education, which I loved. And I wish that I had the episode number for that, but I want to say probably go back about six to nine months. Mm -hmm. So, Rachel, let's jump into some of the details here because I'm intrigued. You, you've got, I'm, I'm curious. I want to learn more. What are the details? How, how does this all fit together? Because we're, we're talking a little bit about the history, who it's for, and kind of what the benefits are, but, but how does it work? Like, I, I still don't understand. 
That's a great, great question. So I will do my best because that is a <laughs> giant, giant question. We need like a diagram or something. I think we should be drawing this out. But um, okay, I want you to try painting me a picture. Of how Let this me works. do that. Okay. So let's just look at the product of life insurance, which if you're listening, you might be saying, Rachel, this is the most boring way you could possibly talk about anything, which is the details of how a financial product works. So bear with me for a second, because it actually is really, really interesting and provides a tremendous amount of advantage and opportunity in your life. So if you have, say you're in a position where you are saving dollars on a dollars or whatever monetary currency you're using, but you have an income here and you have expenses here, which means there's a gap. So you have money that's not. This being is mostly spent. A, an audio podcast, so we're gonna. Oh. her hands are about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm painting with my with my hands here. Paint with your words, my friend Rachel. All right. Paint with your words. All right. So you're in a position where you have more income than expenses. That means you are able to do what the richest man in Babylon talks about about paying yourself first. You're in a position where you are saving money and you are paying your future self by keeping some of the money you make, which is the number one first principle of wealth creation. So then you say, where am I going to put those dollars? I want them in as best of a bank for me as possible. Something that's indestructible, something that is not, it's bulletproof. It's something that nothing can break down or erode and nothing can take away my opportunity to use that. So we have those dollars. Let's just say for the sake of the discussion today, that it's $5,000 a month that you have that you, that's in excess of your expenses. And you say, where am I going to put this money? I eventually maybe want to get it into real estate, but right now there's not a deal that I want to jump on right now, but I want to be building this capital reserve. I want to have accessible money. I want to be able to have cash in whatever form to use for something in the future, for emergencies or for opportunities. So if you are going to use the privatized banking process, those dollars could be put into a life insurance policy. And again, I am not giving advice. This is not necessarily for everyone, but there's a very good reason to be able to use this product for this purpose. And the reason is we're looking at what is the function of that money. It's not just about what product is the best, but really about what's the purpose of that money. And if I want to have money that's accessible and usable, that's growing, that I can trust that it's going to be safe and be there for me, this is a really good product that fulfills that. So I put my dollars into a life insurance policy. Now it is not just a savings account. So there's additional benefits so it's not just money that's going into your, your 5,000 per month is not just going into a bank savings account. It's going into a life insurance policy that would be in the form of premium. What happens is that premium then purchases death benefit, but it also provides you cash value. We get this question a lot. Is that two separate accounts? What does that exactly mean? When you're using a whole life insurance policy, what happens is that the cash value is a portion of your death benefit that's available for you to use. So what that means, let's just say your 5,000 a month is going into the policy. Let's just say that buys you $2 million worth of death benefit that would pay out to your family and your loved ones if you passed away. And let's just say that if it's designed ideally, which there's a lot of ways to design a policy, but let's just say it's designed to maximize the amount of cash available to you right away. 
you'll probably have in the ballpark of maybe $4,000 immediately available once you pay that premium. That means I've put money in and now I have a lot of that money available for me to be able to use that's in the cash value. Then the more premiums that I put into the policy, the more I increase the cash value. And again, if it's structured properly, that will also increase your death benefit. So what's happening is I'm building this savings tank. I'm using this to not only build up savings for myself, I also know that if I at some point am not able to fulfill my lifetime wealth creation because somehow I'm not living my full life expectancy to well past 100 that we all want to do, that my family is going to be taken care of. So does that, is that clear so far? Is that making sense or is there anything I can clarify about that part? We will just take a quick break. Over the last couple of years of building up the expat money show and escape artist, I have been interviewed more than 100 times on podcasts, news programs, blogs, magazines, and newspapers. Well, recently I was a guest on the Brian Nichols show, and he was one of the best hosts I have ever met. I immediately started messaging my friends and business contacts that they needed to listen to the show right now. The show is for people who are tired of partisan politics, who are having trouble finding objective news without the media narrative, and for folks who want to expand their skills and understanding of complex issues as they learn from noted entrepreneurs, elected officials, C-level executives, economists, and more. The show has been going for nearly three years, and now with three episodes per week, there is a ton to keep you entertained and informed. Their flagship show airs on Friday mornings right after the Expat Money Show. So you can literally listen to a new episode of the Expat Money Show, then immediately listen to the Brian Nichols Show on your favorite podcasting app. Noted guests include Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, Dr. Joe Jorgensen, Matt Kibbe, Brad Palumbo, Mark Lobliner, Austin Peterson, Jason Stapleton, Larry Sharp, and of course, me, Mikkel Thorpe, on episode 133. So what I want you to do right now is put this episode on pause and go and subscribe and turn on notifications to The Brian Nichols Show. That's B-R-I-A-N-N-I-C-H-O-L-S Show. And if you go to briannicholsshow.com or if you search for Brian Nichols on your favorite podcasting app, you'll find it there. Okay, let's jump back into the episode. That makes sense so far, but definitely there's a lot of questions to come. So I, 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 will, I will let you continue because I'm going to guess that you're going to answer a couple of them on your own, and then I'll come in with the, the trickier ones after. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Tricky. I like it. All right. So, so what's happening is that as you're putting dollars into this policy, you are growing this cash value that you can use. Then you're in a position where this money grows for you in two ways. One is through interest. That is a guaranteed growth rate. So give me an example of what that type of rate might be. Are those, who are those set by? Do you know in advance what it is? Are there qualifiers for a change? The guaranteed growth rate does not change. So before you sign up for a policy, you're going to see an illustration, which basically means this is a projection of how this policy would work out for you year by year over the rest of your lifetime. And what is going to happen with that is that you are going to see a guaranteed growth rate based on interest. And you're going to see that if you fund with this amount of money in this year, then 
in that same year, year one, this is how much guaranteed cash value you're going to have available. In year two, this is how much we're expecting, we, the life insurance company, is expecting you're going to put in, and then you're going to have this amount of cash value available in year two. Now, so that's on the guaranteed side because that's guaranteed interest. But I mentioned there's a second way that your cash value is growing, and that is through dividends. So dividends are when the life insurance company, now I didn't mention earlier, but this is a mutual life insurance company. It's a dividend paying life insurance company where when you are a policy owner, you are an owner of the company. And as they're profitable, they set aside their reserves and then they distribute that profit in the form of a dividend to all of their policy holders. And so that dividend then can fluctuate from year to year. But what happens, the dividend is actually not guaranteed, but the companies we work with have paid dividends for well over a hundred years through really terrible times. And they've been in a position of continual growth and continually fulfilling on their promises. So you, your, your cash value is growing in multiple ways. One, you're putting money in, in terms of premium on an annual basis. Then there's internal growth, that interest and the dividends. So the coolest part, and I don't want to lose you, but the coolest <laughs> part is that this cash value, imagine you have this suitcase of cash value that is growing in those three ways. It's growing through premiums that you're paying in the future. It's growing through guaranteed interest and it's growing through non-guaranteed but highly anticipated dividends as well. So three ways that that suitcase is growing every year for you. Then what happens is you take that suitcase and you say, you know, I've got 10, I've got $100,000 in this suitcase. I want to invest in this multifamily deal. I'm then able to take that suitcase and instead of opening it up and taking the dollars out of the suitcase and stopping their growth inside the life insurance, I'm leveraging that suitcase instead. So what that means is that my dollars in the life insurance keep on growing while I put them to work in another place at the same time, meaning that I can keep my reserves growing plus earn a return on an investment at the same time. So I'm boosting my investment returns. I'm getting my money to do two things at once. It's multitasking or stacking my strategies. And so let, let's dig into that a little bit. So leverage is one of those things that you have to be immensely careful with. When you're leveraging your assets, are we doing a, a multiplier effect? Because I'm thinking back into when I was trading derivatives and things, um, how much capital I had to leverage that to buy a certain amount of another asset? Or is this just a one-for-one? One? That's a great question. So it is one-for-one. One, okay. And I believe I'm answering your question correctly. So tell me if this is um, speaking exactly to what the nature of your question was. So let's just say that I had $100,000 inside of my cash value. This is a common misnomer because people will say, but I have... 2 million in death benefit, can I borrow against that 2 million? Well, no, the 2 million is the death benefit that will pay out if you passed away early. But the amount that's available to you at this time, based on those three types of growth I mentioned, that's your cash value. So the cash value is a smaller portion. It's less than your full death benefit. And you can borrow up to the amount of cash value. So say that's $100,000 in that suitcase I mentioned, you may, usually there's a small portion, maybe uh, one to 3% that they need to keep in reserves, but you would be able to then borrow out, let's just say $97,000 against 
that $100,000 suitcase and put that to work in an in a, another investment. And so the way that leverage would be something that you really need to be careful with is that let's just say you put you borrowed against your life insurance policy, $97,000 against your cash value. You put that into an investment that didn't work out and you lost all that money. Now, what happens is that you don't have the ability to repay the loan from your life insurance policy the way that you had maybe intended to or planned to. You're going to find another way to repay that policy loan because you leveraged, which is borrowing against your policy. You're going to want to repay that. That does mean the life insurance policy stays intact. However, the investment maybe has had a struggle or has disintegrated. Now, that does answer my question because what I've often seen with leverage is that people get themselves into massive amounts of trouble, especially like I mentioned before with stocks and dividend or sorry, stocks and derivatives and futures and anything like this where leverage is very, very common. So say, for example, in your example, you would take $100,000 and you would go out and make a $300,000 investment with the 100000 being the, the initial. So my question was going to be, how much would that have to go down that they would be doing a margin call or anything like that? But if it's a one-for-one, one, then that makes it a lot cleaner and simpler. Now, it's a one-for-one one with some caveats. So think about it this way. Say you had $100,000 in cash value of life insurance and you wanted to go invest in a large property that maybe was $600,000. You can still go get bank financing for the additional portion of that property. But for the portion that you're going to use your life insurance as capital, it's better to even think about that as my cash in the bank. It's almost like I put my cash into this cash account. I'm going to take my cash out and go use that in an investment, except the, the value of doing it with life insurance is that you didn't have to take the cash out. You just borrowed against the cash, which the beauty of that means, hey, I can continue growing my life insurance with dividends and interest while it's working for me in another asset. But still, you want to make sure that you're using your due diligence. You're really vetting the investment deals that you're looking at so that you're not in a position of saying, I had all this cash and now I blew it on an investment that blew up in my face. And now you're in a position of saying, oh, now what do I do? But the cool thing is that if you're borrowing against your life insurance, eventually you do want to repay your loans. We would we would recommend always being in a position where if I take out capital for any reason that I have in my mind, I know that the reason I'm taking it out is going to be financially profitable enough for me to repay that loan or repay that capital so that I'm in a position of making myself whole again. It's like if I just wanted to take money out for a vacation, I know that's not going to increase my net worth. It's not going to give me a stream of income that I'm going to be able to put money back. But I want to think about then in that case, how do I have other income that I can replenish that tank? It's something that we want to always, I'm always looking at our personal life insurance policy that how do we make sure that we're using that. We've used our policy many times to invest in business or even as an emergency fund in some cases where we said, this is where we had this big ticket item that needed to come from somewhere and we would rather take it from the life insurance policy than from cash. And we're in a position of saying this money is available, but we always want a repayment plan. Even if that's over an extended period of years, you can pay back however, whenever you want to. So, and then let's, let's continue with this example. So if you were to give a $100,000 or a $97,000 because you 
want to keep 3% in there as a, as a base. If you lent out that 97,000, would that company then be responsible for paying interest on that money that you've borrowed back to your account? Would that company, you mean, would like, okay, you? Okay, so, so say, for example, you have, uh, it's your life insurance plan, you have the briefcase, and you invest in business X. Would business X then be responsible for paying interest back to the life insurance plan? You, as the owner of the life insurance policy, would be the person who would want to pay that interest back. So yes, there is interest charged. If you think about it like this, and I wish I could um, demonstrate with my hands a little bit, but I'll try (laughs) to paint that verbal picture better here. So imagine you have a tank of money, and I like to think of it as a green tank because it's visual. So, so let's think of this as a like a, a water tank. I don't know if you, uh, if as long as you're not on a tankless water system, <laughs> you will be able to visualize what a water heater tank looks like. So this water heater tank is green, and it's full of cash value. Now, when I go to use my cash value, I'm actually borrowing against it, and I put a lien against a portion of that cash value, and so it's held and I'm not able to use it for anything else. And so the, it's like a, a yellow amount or a portion of that green water heater tank turns yellow. That is now there's a lien against that amount of my money in my water heater tank. And so what's happening is then as I repay that loan, the lien is reduced freeing up my capital to be used again. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It it, It makes sense, but it still hasn't answered my little Yes, about the interest. Yes. So, so what happens is when I take a policy loan, I'm actually taking the life insurance company's money and they are giving me money and I owe them interest back. So anytime I borrow from the life insurance company, I, as the owner of the life insurance company, am responsible to pay that loan back with interest, which then if you think about it, the more that I put into, if I pay back with interest, the life insurance company is profitable. They're able to pay out their dividends. This is a good use of their money from a financial fiduciary standpoint. So if I'm investing then in company X that you said, I would, as the owner of the life insurance company and the investor in company X, I would want to have vetted them to make sure that they're in a position, that I'm in a position, that my investment is going to be a productive investment. So it's not the company X's job, but it's my job as the investor to make sure that that's going to be a substantial, profitable investment. Does that answer your question? Yes. However, for the business, I assume that you would be expecting and through your due diligence, the business itself would be making a larger return on investment than the the interest that you were paying back to the insurance company. So it's really that arbitrage between the two numbers. Absolutely. So can we get into those numbers or is it on a case-by-case basis or is there kind of a flat uh, interest payment goes across the board. Does that make sense? That is a good question. And that's really more so on a case by case basis. It's going to depend on which it's going to depend on your specific policy. It's going to depend on your growth rate, how long the policy has been in force, but interest is something that's usually going to be set by the company. That's probably a little too much to get into today, but there's some companies that will set a fixed interest rate for any loans that you take. Some are going to be variable interest. Some of those are higher than others. Um, But really what you're looking at is you're always thinking, how do I make sure that I'm earning more than what I'm paying back in interest? But the cool thing is the reason to use this as opposed to say using cash, 
Because that would be the next question. Well, if I put my money into the life insurance policy versus why don't I just put it in that coffee can in the backyard, save it in cash, take the money out of the coffee can in the backyard and use it for this investment. What's happening is if you use cash, whether it's in a banking, whether it's in you know a, just a typical bank savings account or checking account or, or the coffee can, in any of those cases, you are going to have to stop that growth on that money. And when you put money back in, you're going to have to restart and reset the compounding. What is really interesting, and this takes visuals to be able to, to really grasp the magnitude of, but if you have ever seen an exponential growth curve, you know what I'm talking about when you hear that compounding starts really small. And in the early years, it feels like it's taking forever to get going. It feels like it's stuck in the mud, like this isn't really doing much good for me. And as you continue on the time curve, there comes this point where it's almost like the hockey stick that goes up because exponential growth and through compound interest takes time to really get off the ground. And then it is powerful for you. So the more times that you have to keep resetting the start point of your growth, the further and further back you push that hockey stick. And most people who just use a savings account and say, I'm just going to save cash and pay cash, save up cash, pay cash. They never end up building true wealth by growing wealth up that exponential growth curve because they're just borrowing and, and repaying and borrowing and repaying from themselves. They're borrowing from themselves. Yeah. So that is super interesting. I do wish that we could, I, I kind of wish for, a, I, we had this written out. But I guess one of the things that also popped into my head is that you actually can have a slightly less return on, it, going back to our example, business X, because the original capital is growing, which is providing, is growing itself. So you could even have it kind of split where you would only need to be several percent ahead because you still have that original growth. Do I have that correct? Yes, and that's actually a very astute and profound um, observation. That's mm -hmm. the word I'm looking for, observation <laughs> that you've made. And Like I said, flattery will get you everywhere, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not flattering, this is honest. <laughs> What's really interesting is that I personally, and I can only speak for myself, I think it's dangerous to say what someone else should do, but I can mm -hmm. speak to you about what I value and what I'm doing. What I value is having as much certainty and guarantees as possible. Now, not the kind of guarantees that it has to be tangible right in front of me, or I'm not going to take any risk with something because we know that there's, I mean, risk in walking out your front door. There's risk in breathing. I mean, there's, everything has a little bit of risk associated. However, I would rather have slow, steady, predictable, boring returns than something that is flashy and magnificent overnight. And all of a sudden I've gone from nothing to everything because that kind of money is not lasting. and usually doesn't produce long lasting wealth that produces a valuable growth in your life and your posterity's life. And I mean, I could also, we'll, we'll get into this in a second, but the value for me is not just in what it can do for me financially during my life, but the death benefit that will pay on to my children and what they can do with that because that legacy is even more important to me than just what I'm able to do during my lifetime. Well, I want to get into the generational because I mean, 
estate planning and these types of things are super important. And it's something that we talk about a ton at Escape Artist and Expat Money Show and things like this. Like we are big time defense. But before we go into the generational wealth transfer, because I think that's going to be a big topic in of itself, I do want to talk just about some of the safety measures with the insurance company or with these types of products. How do we know that this company will be there in the future? How do we know that the policy will be able to, to pay out? You, know, you, you mentioned the longevity before, but let's dig into those types of things a little bit more first. Oh, that's really, really a good question. And I think, again, if somebody is in the position, like I mentioned a second ago, about really wanting that long-term growth and that slow, steady, predictable, guaranteed growth, and they're more in it for the long haul versus somebody who's just looking for a flash in the pan, they're going to be asking that question. How do I know that this is something that's stable and guaranteed and certain. So what I like to look back at, and we actually have just done an episode on this on our show, looking at how safe really are life insurance companies. And what we did is we looked back at historically what life insurance companies have done and seen and been through. And when you really look at multiple elements, one is the, the fact that the life insurance company is looking at their investment strategy. So if we just step into the shoes of the life insurance company for a minute, they have to make guarantees because they have given you a policy that they know they're going to have to pay out. I will put a little caveat here. There are lots of different kinds of life insurance and we have not talked about all of the options. I mentioned term life insurance earlier. I'm now talking about whole life insurance. There's a whole bunch in the middle that is this whole gray area. There's universal, there's variable life, there's variable universal, there's equity indexed life insurance. There's so many different terms with a lot of lack of guarantees. I'm not speaking about any of those type of middle ground gray area life insurance policies. So I am specifically talking about whole life insurance, which the way that they operate, they have to be able to pay out a death benefit. A whole life insurance policy is something that is in effect for your whole life. The way that it works is that you have an age of endowment, which is a fancy weird term, but that just means the end of the maximum possible life that you probably would live. Right now, policies that are issued now go to age 120. So what that means is that as long as you pass away before 120, they will pay out a death benefit. What happens if you live past 120? I'm sure you're asking. This is actually great news because at that point, at the age of endowment, your cash value, which remember is the part of your death benefit you can use while you're living, has now grown and met that death benefit amount. So I know you're not seeing the visual if you're listening to the podcast here, but it's, I call it a banana curve. It's this exponential curve, the top line is your death benefit. The bottom line going right up to that same peak is your cash value. At that age of endowment, now they're both equal. What that means is I can access and use up to my full death benefit. And the policy then would endow, meaning they would pay out the death benefit to me, the living me who's now 120 years old and one day because I lived past that end of my policy. So they have to guarantee the ability to pay out death claims. They're not saying, you know, probably will pay out or hopefully it's likely we'll pay out this death claim. They're saying we guarantee that we will. 
So now for them to be able to do that, they have a lot of regulations internally inside of their company for how they invest their dollars. And most of their money is invested in investment grade corporate bonds, usually about 75% as an industry whole. If you looked at all of the various mutual life insurance companies across all of them, and you said, where is the bulk of their money invested? It's in investment grade bonds. And now what this can mean, they also use a strategy called bond laddering. And so they have at all different points in time, they're purchasing new bonds and they're selling old bonds. And so they're letting their bonds go to maturity. And they're not like a small investor like you and I, who might buy a bond today, then sell that bond and whatever the market price is, then I have to use that money that I sold the bond with to buy a new bond. They're instead always having new premium dollars coming in to the company that they're able to then invest. So they're always starting new investments in new bonds. Now, certainly they do invest in other things as well. They invest in real estate. They invest in a very small portion, usually 3% or less in securities. So they're not making speculative decisions with their money. They're not taking high risk strategies. They're very conservative and they're holding high reserve ratios. So they're keeping a dollar in reserves, one-to-one reserve ratio at least. So meaning that if they have a million dollars pledged out, and this is on a way small scale because they have way more than this, but a million dollars in death benefit that is going to pay out. So in death benefit claims, they have a million dollars in cash reserves as well to be able to cover that. And so what's interesting is that they're in a way stronger position than most of the banking institutions, which are more in a position where they might have, you know, a, a small portion, or they might have a 10 to one reserve ratio where they might have a $10 pledged out and they only have $1 in the actual bank to be able to go and access. So those are just a few things. So their reserve ratio, their conservative investment strategy, and then just looking back historically, the way that they've paid dividends over many years through great crises, crises. I think that would be the way to say that. If it were being we'll go with that one. I think that grammatical. <laughs> um, so really looking at the stability and strength over time. And then they have, you know, the, the banking system in the United States has the FDIC, the Federal yeah. Deposit Insurance Corporation. And that backs up your bank deposits up to a certain dollar amount. I think it's about 200,000 per, per account. Whereas the insurance company will have the state guarantee association and that is per state they have an agency that would then back up the life insurance companies if they were to go under but what's really interesting is there's been way fewer life insurance companies that have gone under than banks and that's something really interesting as well so you did mention something in there that i'm a really big fan of what you were talking about really was diversification and diversification through time. I think that a lot of people, when they think about diversification, they think about it so simply. And I think that time is one of those things that is so underrated when we look at how our money works. I think that this, this is something that people need to really understand and learn more about because if they have bonds that are coming in and then coming to maturity, and then going back out again into new companies. I mean, that is, that is a safety mechanism in its own. You know, these are not, oh, 20 year, 30 year treasury bonds. And now we need to buy and sell on the open market based on the value of today and hope that the country or 
the treasury is going to be able to pay these things back. I mean, if you're talking about corporate bonds and you're going to be investing in, you know, big blue chip companies, I mean, that is a lot more fluid, I would say. Yes, it's it's really interesting to look not only at their conservative nature of investing in corporate bonds for the most part, but just that long range perspective. What's interesting is one of the points that we brought up just even on the podcast we did last week was the idea that 2020, I mean, a lot of people have been really concerned with the really low, I mean, really low interest rates right now, and even low bond yields right now as a result of that. And so looking at is the life insurance company being impacted because of those factors? And are is COVID causing higher death rates? And is that causing there to have more costs inside of the company so that there's instability inside of the company? And the answer is no. Life insurance companies have been really navigating this falling or lowering interest rate and bond yield environment for about the last 40 years since about the 1980, about 1980 was the peak of those rates. And they've kind of done this yo-yo effect over time. But right now we're really, we've been in this falling interest rate and bond environment for a long time. And they've navigated very, very well. And they've still continued to pay better rates than banks or any other place that you can store liquid cash. And so that's the interesting point. And I mean, I know that you didn't even ask this question, but a lot of times people will say, well, you know, should I, what should I think of life insurance as? Do I think of it as an investment? And I always clarify and say that it's not an investment. This is really thinking about how do I store my liquid cash? How do I store the money that I want to be able to use and access and get to in that emergency or in that opportunity? We're not comparing this against the stock market or, or someplace that's a high yield investment. We're really looking at how do I have that conservative approach and that conservative cash. And so when we're looking at long-term, how do I know life insurance companies are going to stay in existence for a long time? I mean, I can't predict the future, but I do know if I look at their their history and their trajectory of what they've done in the past, I'm really certain that they're going to continue to stay head and shoulders above any other place to be able to store liquid cash. Well, and then you mentioned a very important thing there, and and I don't want to have a big conversation about this, but I'm sure it's on a lot of people's minds. How are the insurance companies doing with COVID? Because I mean, we look at these crazy numbers all over the media of people dying. I think that it would be a logical or possibly a... uh, a lot of people's first thoughts that the insurance companies must be in very big trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's definitely something that would be top of mind. And especially if you're thinking, well, that's a cost to them. More people dying is more death claims to be paying. And, and you can look at this in multiple ways. But one thing that's really important to note about life insurance companies is that I mentioned the word underwriting earlier. Now, underwriting is something that would qualify somebody who has excellent health for the best life insurance coverage. And somebody who has a pre-existing condition may not get as good of a rate or may be declined for coverage altogether. And logically, from the life insurance company's perspective, which I feel like is a, a really good perspective to step into their shoes for a minute to understand this whole dynamic, they're in a position of if if I, the life insurance company, need to pay out this claim, I need to know that if they've paid me $5,000 per month in premium for two months, the likelihood of them dying is not tomorrow where I'm going to pay out this $2 million claim. That would be a huge loss to me, the life insurance company. I want to be in a position where I'm 
hoping that they're going to pay premiums for a long period of time. Now, there's actuaries that are inside the life insurance company that are looking at over a bell curve, over the the wide spectrum of all various ages and genders and health conditions. They know with certainty the percentage of 37-year-old females are going to die at age 37. They just don't know who they are. And so what they're looking at is statistics and actuarial science to figure out how to place the people who are being underwritten on this bell curve. And so if you are going to, if you have certain health conditions that make you more unhealthy today, you're going to pay a higher premium because financially for the life insurance company, they're much more at risk of having to pay out a claim sooner. And so what happens is this whole underwriting process then disqualifies people who are most unhealthy at this time. So just imagine that maybe there's somebody who's a smoker or maybe they had pre-existing conditions or had gone through a heart attack or a stroke or multiple of those and had diabetes as well. And while that's not a situation that anyone wants to be in, unfortunately, they would not be as likely to be able to be insured. So most of the people, when we look at COVID, again, not a glamorous point at all, but something that has kind of percolated to the surface is that we've realized that the people that have been most likely to pass away as a result of COVID have had pre-existing conditions as well. And more than likely, those people probably would either not have been insured in the first place or, or were not as great of an impact to the life insurance companies as one would expect. Actually, there was an article that we cited in that uh, podcast that we had done last week. And there was a insurer in the state of New York that has the highest in the, in the U.S., had the highest um, case count with COVID. And it was a hotbed really for COVID and a lot going on in the state of New York. And they said that even this insurer that does a lot of business in the state of New York, they had seen higher death claims and higher um, claims that they had had to pay out as a result, but it wasn't significant enough to impact their business. And so that was really encouraging from a standpoint of being a consumer, looking at the safety and security of the life insurance company and their ability to handle something that might be a blip in the radar this year of 2020 and the impacts of COVID. That makes perfect sense. And I think that is a very, very comprehensive answer because I think that a lot of people, it would be really front of mind on on what to expect and what's happening in the world. But it's interesting as well because really what you've just described is a very libertarian viewpoint from the company's perspective because really you are being rewarded for taking care of yourself. Like if you are like, this is not, we are all created equal and it's okay for me to be paying the same amount of money even though I go to the gym five times a week, eat only organic food, drink kombucha and things like this and sleep eight hours a day. And my next door neighbor drinks four liters of Coca-Cola, is 200 pounds overweight and doesn't get up off the couch. You know, I actually pay less than him. He pays more. That's a really libertarian type of thing. So you're actually being rewarded for doing good things opposed to having to pay for people who don't take these things seriously. So I, I actually like that. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I'll even take the libertarian idea one step further, and I know we're almost at the top of our time with the show, but what's really interesting is that 
it also helps the person who takes that full responsibility and says, I want to be financially independent. I don't want to rely on handouts or social security payments or a pension from a company that I've worked for for a lot of years. Maybe I'm more of that wealth creator who said, I'm going to launch out with two feet and I'm going to walk on this water of figuring out how to do business, whether you're being a digital nomad or whether you're uh, a coach or whether you're starting a company or whether you've bought a company or you're in a family business or you're in the construction industry, wherever you find yourself, if you are in this position of saying, I am going to choose to figure out how to create value for the world around me and I'm going to figure out how to not only create a great income for myself, but I'm going to be in a position where I keep as much money as possible. And I turn that into cash flowing assets and I turn it into things that produce an income for me. Now I'm in a position where I've taken full responsibility for where I go in the future and where my posterity goes in the future. And I see life insurance just really being this, almost this puzzle piece that fits right into that, that says, that allows you to be in a position of maximizing your legacy, the, the, everything that you're able to do with your lifetime and everything that you're able to give to future generations. And one step further on the libertarian idea, there's a guy named Robert Murphy that has written several books about privatized banking, one called how privatized banking really works. And he worked with the Mises Institute, which was all about Austrian economics. He has co-written, he has a blog and a podcast that he works with, or I'm not sure if there's a podcast, but there's a, a report called the Laura Murphy Report. And he works with a guy named Carlos Lara, and they work together and they write articles all about privatized banking and really dig deep, deep, deep into how life insurance works, how strong the life insurance companies are from a very libertarian, Austrian economic wealth creation, being a producer point of view. And these guys then worked with Nelson Nash, who is the father of infinite banking, the infinite banking concept, who really mm -hmm. popularized the idea. Mm -hmm. And they worked together to create a certification program for practitioners and advisors. And so my co-host on the podcast, as well as um, the guy who is the lead advisor in our team, he's been personally mentored by Nelson Nash and by this mentorship program. And really helping people to take financial control of their lives. And so I just thought you'd be interested in, in knowing that Robert Murphy has connected a lot also with fee, the um, financial for economic or foundation for economic education. I think it's amazing because so many times people think that libertarians are against social safety nets. And I don't think that's the case. I think that libertarians don't want it to be put in place by force. They don't want it to be put in that you have to contribute. But I have no problem with going out there. Like we have full platinum coverage, the best of the best health insurance that I could get. I pay for that out of my own pocket. That is not provided by the state. That is not provided by the country that I live in. I have life insurance. I pay for that myself. I don't expect anybody else to pay for those types of things. I like the social safety net. I just want to be in control of it myself. Yes. Yes, I think, I mean, you of all people know and understand that idea of control. And I think if my husband and I, as we started this whole personal financial journey from the very beginning that I shared with you, I think the number one thing that we were looking for is control. We were the first to say, we don't want to opt in for the 401k at, at the employer. 
We don't want to put our money in a place where somebody else is in control of which bucket that goes into and what my projected returns are if I live to a certain age and if inflation doesn't happen and tax rate stays exactly the same. And all of these factors that most of the time just has us completely out of control and not in the driver's seat of our financial life and dependent on all of these unknowns that we can't guarantee. And so really we wanted to say, how do we have as much control of our financial life as possible? Because as I have control, now I'm able to figure out what I want to do with my life. I'm not beholden to somebody else who's telling me what I can and can't do. Well, I think that's amazing. So I guess kind of my last question is that generational wealth transfer that we kind of alluded to before. Maybe you can break down some of those ideas for the listeners and kind of how that plays into part. And then maybe we can go into some resources, you know, maybe your podcast or things like that, where people will be able to follow up and learn more. Oh, that's perfect. And I love the question because I think as I have walked this journey of trying to figure out what is the best way to create that control and create that economic independence for myself and my family and take that ownership, not trusting anyone else to do that for me. That has led us to this life insurance concept. But what's really interesting is that we've done, that we've used life insurance for much more than just the financial benefits that we get during our lifetime. That's one of the things that's flashiest. It's kind of on the surface. It's the thing, I don't even want to say flashy, but it's the thing that's most obvious. I can put my money here. I can use it more productively and easily. But really there's something that took it even deeper for me to a much more emotional and personal level. And we already had life insurance in place. We already had the estate plan in place. We'd been thinking long-term about how do we make sure that our kids are taken care of if anything happened to us. But that was kind of a hypothetical what if until about a year and four months ago, 16 months ago, I gave birth to my second daughter. And it was such a crazy experience after I almost died having to go into the operating room. I hemorrhaged. I was given eight units of blood. I didn't even understand what that meant until I looked it up later. And I realized that literally every drop of blood in my body, once I came out of that was not produced by my own body. It was given to me from donors who saved my life. There was an entire medical team that was there making sure that I had the most fighting chance. And thankfully it was very acute. It happened quickly from the time I went into surgery to the time I came to was approximately four hours. And during that span of time, it was the scariest time in my husband's life that he has ever walked through with a newborn baby in his arms and wondering, is his wife going to be able to be the mother of this child? And we walk through that situation realizing that life is not guaranteed. You know, I like you, I'm into fitness and all the health things and sleeping. The, I try to get nine hours a night. I drink the gallon of water a day. I'm in a position of taking care of this body that is the temple that I've been given to the maximum of my ability. And I was healthy and I felt amazing going through pregnancy and, and all the things that I never would have guessed could have ever happened to me. And yet I was in one of those positions of wondering, 
am I going to recover from this? And by the time I came to, I was only in the ICU for about 24 hours. And then I was almost back up and running. It took a long time to get my, my iron and my hemoglobin back. Mm -hmm. Hemoglobin. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Clearly I'm not in the medical industry, (laughs) but be able to get into a position of being strong again. But what that made us really realize is that if I was gone tomorrow, just like that, how can we make sure that our two girls have as much as possible to take care of everything that we had dreamed of creating with them? Meaning not just do they have money, because money is a tiny, tiny, tiny part of your entire life where you're thinking, how do I pass on this legacy of values? How do I make sure that they have access to the schools that we're choosing for them while we're alive? But what if we're not here? How do we make sure that those choices, the schools that, that they're put into, the diet that they're given, the opportunity to travel, the relationships that we want to give them access and opportunity to, how do we make sure those things continue to be in place for them so that they have the most opportunity to advance and and really just flourish and fulfill their human life potential, their human life value. And so really we did some deep dive and some deep looking into our life and really fleshed out what, what is our family mission statement? What are our family values? How can we put an estate plan in place that really helps them to not just get a lump sum of cash when they turn 18 or 21 or 25 that they don't know what to do with, how do we make sure that this is something that continues this legacy where they're able to use this as seed capital to start businesses and really invest into their the person of who they are to become the most that they can be and create this perpetual legacy that not only takes care of them for the immediate, but is really thinking multi-generationally. So that's where life insurance became so much more than just, how can I get a better rate of return? How can I store my cash in a better spot today? This really made me value at a deep, at a, at a fundamental level, the death benefit that I think so many times we just kind of gloss over and we're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm going to die someday. And hopefully when I'm 110, and that's what I think, I'm going to live that long and I'm going to live an amazing life until then. But what if something cut that short? How do I make sure that I give the best that I can offer to the family that I love? And so life insurance just became so much more for me. Well, I had goosebumps like that is just uh, first of all i'm super super glad that everything is okay and that um you know you you are there to take care and love your family but my goodness that must have been just so immensely scary for someone someone so for everybody involved sorry oh i'm a little bit like uh, (laughs) it definitely was well rachel it's I guess it's not really to, to, to leave the episode on a down point. I mean, because the story does have a happy ending. Um, but I guess, and this is not really so much of a question, but I mean, you are going to be taking a lot of these ideas, a lot of the things that we've discussed today. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you are putting them into a book. Is that yes. right? Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. So I'm writing a book and I really wanted to put all of me, all of my story into a book that wasn't just this cheesy life insurance, you know, 101 manual that's really- yeah. Dummy's product. Guide to Life Insurance yeah, or something I like mean, that. I we, mean, we talk about life insurance. We're known really as the whole life insurance people, the privatized banking people. People are coming to us to figure out how to 
I implement privatized banking in my financial life? And even more than that, how do I keep as much of the cash that I make as possible? How do I minimize my taxes? How do I really get as much of my income working for me and producing time and money freedom as possible? But I didn't just want to talk about the financial element without really digging deep and sharing where that comes from and the tremendous value and the root of what it does for me and my family and that peace of mind. And so, yes, I'm writing a book on how to create a multi-generational legacy of more than money. And so this is a work in progress right now. I would love to say that it's finished, but it is going to be coming soon. I have my own hopeful deadline that it will be launched by January 1, but we're in the process of writing that book Um, And we do have additional resources as well with the podcast. We have a lot of other ways that you can find out more information about life insurance, but the life work that I'm pouring myself into right now is really being able to share that this life insurance product is just so much more than just that. I really wanted to lay that over into the context of who I am as a person and why we're using this so much more than just the financial reasons. Well, Rachel, you are an incredible human being, and I just love today's conversation. I'm super excited for the book. Um, I don't know if you have a title picked out for the book. So if my listener is listening to this episode in the future, maybe they'll be able to go to Amazon. Um, At this time, it will be called Seven Generations. And the reason for that is that there's this old Iroquois way of thinking that was multi-generational. And as they were making any decision, they would say, how will this decision impact seven generations from now? And what I think is profound about that, I had to look up how many years is seven generations? Because normally we don't think in these kind of epic lengths of time. That's about 200 years. So if I think back 200 years, I mean, we're talking like civil war era in the U.S., if I think forward 200 years, I'm not going to be alive. I'm, I know for sure I'm not going to be here. Yeah. But seven generations, how long can the decisions that I make today impact 200 years from now? Not just my family lineage, my family line, but the people who they'll impact and reach. And I think that can be something that we all think about. Anyone who's listening, how can you think about the decisions that you're making today having the greatest impact for the longest length of time. And so that's where the seven generations idea came from. And there's going to be a subtitle as well with that. And, and hopefully we haven't changed the title by the time your listeners get to this episode, but <laughs> well, I will buy the book. Right I, I am sold. I am super, super excited about it now, but I awesome. love today's conversation, Rachel. This has been unbelievable. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? Absolutely. You can go to themoneyadvantage.com. That's again, T-H-E-M-O-N-E-Y-A-D-V-A-N-T-A-G-E. I probably didn't need to spell the whole thing, but for some reason, the, the, the money advantage, we'll leave it at that. Themoneyadvantage.com. We actually have a way that you can book on our calendar directly through the website as well. And so there's a link available right on the homepage that you can click that will take you over to our advisor calendar. And that would allow you the opportunity to jump straight into a conversation. If you knew that you really found something in, in what I've shared today that really piqued your interest or that you wanted to explore personally. If you were ready for that conversation, that's something available to anyone. And that's a 30 minute conversation. Otherwise we have the podcast available that you can peruse. And we also have the quick and easy privatized banking guide for investors. And that is really kind of a deep dive on 
understanding what is this whole financial product. And that actually does have some illustrations and some visuals. So <laughs> you will get a little bit more in there, some graphs and graphics. So you'll understand that water heater tank I mentioned that's green and yellow that's in there. Uh, and it really will help you understand what is life insurance even doing specifically what is specially designed whole life insurance dividend paying life insurance with a mutual company. What is that doing for me if I choose to use it? So we have that free guide. We have a course as well. You'll be presented all that information. If you jump in, get the free guide, anything else that you want is accessible from there. And you can get that at privatizedbankingsecrets.com. I love it. Rachel, awesome. I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you, Mikkel. I want to remind you that if you go to expatmoneyshow.com, you're going to be able to download our special report. It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. It has been a project of mine I have been working on for maybe four years now, and I constantly update this with the newest and best strategies. Now, it's really different than a lot of other special reports or books out there because this one is really short, and it is short on purpose. What I want to do is kind of highlight to you the best of the best strategies that are out there in the world and then where you can go for additional information or how you can get involved in these things. So instead of writing a 500-page special report on this, which probably chances are no one is going to read it, this is really highly condensed information. I've actually put it in an infographic. It's an infographic special report. Uh, it has helped thousands upon thousands of people really get a grasp of being an expat and what type of things are out there to protect your assets, professionals that you should be working with, investments, real estate, these types of things. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can pick it up at expatmoneyshow.com. You'll see it. It's on the very first page at the very top. All you need to do is put in your name and email address. You're going to get a chance to actually join my private email list, EMS Pulse. And there's just so much great things that are shared on there. It's completely free. There's no funnel. There's no trick to this. There's no credit card needed, anything like that. It's just a good resource for you, my listener, who I love and adore. And I want to do right by you guys. So go to expatmoneyshow.com, pick this up. Let me know what you think. I'll talk to you soon. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region.
But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.